learned in a dream that the kingdoms of this world are powerful and glorious, but they are fading and they will tumble and be crushed. And there is another king, God's kingdom coming. And so choose wisely. And then chapter three talks about the fiery furnace. Don't conform to the idols of this world. Don't bow down to the pressure of this world because God is able to deliver his people from any power, whether it's from this oppression or ultimately in the resurrection that is to come. And this chapter still has a message for God's people, but it now shows how God deals with someone who is not his follower. The main actor is clearly the uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to read the scripture as we go along today, and we'll get to that in a second. But please first bow with me in another word of prayer. Lord, even coming to your word when done properly is an act of humility, of knowing that we need to be mastered by your word. We need to have our lives structured and ordered so that we can grow free and full as you planned for us to do. And so may this be a joy for us today as we heed your warnings and we taste your pleasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been humbled? Have you ever been put in your place, knocked down a peg or two? How did you respond to that? Uh, I'll tell you a time of mine that wasn't too embarrassing. It was during my, my one semester in ROTC. Uh, was a, I was an enlisted soldier, and I after decided that I, I didn't want to be both an engineering student and an ROTC student. It was just a little too much for me. But I got to do the ROTC leadership course, and uh, being a younger soldier, I didn't get to do it right away, being the leader. But I, was, but I got to be second in command, and I was great at giving all kinds of suggestions, whether they were helpful or not. Some of them were, some of them probably weren't. Um, but then, at the very end, they said, okay, Barshinger, you're up. You're in charge. And all of a sudden, I realized I didn't have time to sit back and just look at one aspect and think of a couple of helpful suggestions. There was all these details coming at me at once. And I floundered a little bit. It wasn't a complete failure, but it was, it was harder than I thought. And maybe it was the first indication for me that, that leading troops and making split-second decisions wasn't something that was going to come naturally to me. If it was going to something I was doing, it would take some practice. And it's, it's in reality why 20 years later I'm a chaplain. One of the reasons I'm a chaplain where I can be a support and not a commander that's got to kind of make those split-second decisions. Well, that was humbling. And it was a reality check, and it helped me get a better view of my life. And it really did shape in some ways, not just that instance, but others like it, how I lived and the goals I set and, and what I thought, well, how is God going to use me? Well, our chapter today begins with a king who looks back on a series, a period of his life with a new realization. Let's look at the first three verses of chapter four. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages, that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now you have to ask right off the beginning, why would Nebuchadnezzar talk that way? He's a pagan king 
who worships false gods, and if you read the earlier chapters, mostly himself. And yet here he is beginning this part of his story by giving you his final understanding. And what would it take to make an all-powerful king who makes his own gods, who has everyone bow, bow down to them, begin with this declaration of a true God's power and sovereignty? What would it take? Well, Nebuchadnezzar then starts back at the beginning. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now, when he says I was at ease, it doesn't mean he was lazy. This is a picture of an ancient king who has accomplished great things. He's forged an empire. He's built great buildings. And and now he kind of sits back and he governs his work with approval. It's, It's actually very similar to the picture of God as king in Genesis 2 where God completes the heavens and the earth, and after, he sits back and he rests. And he's, he's ordering and governing his creation. And here is Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's resting at ease. He is at the peak of his power. He's at the prime of his life. He has no enemies in sight. He rules a massive empire from Egypt to Iran, from, from Syria to Saudi Arabia, this huge chunk of geography. Nations, all kinds of peoples and ethnic groups bow down and serve him. His city, Babylon, was the wonder of the ancient world. It was called the City of Gold. He supposedly built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon just to cheer up his homesick wife who came from the wooded hills of Media. And so Babylon's a plain, so he built her a wooded hill of the Hanging Gardens. And then he had this impressive city wall, which was said was so large that at some places you could drive four chariots abroad, breast around it, 17 miles in length. In fact, we have a, we have a picture. Uh, Steve, you have the picture of the, the Babylon Wall. Now, this is a reconstruction by Iraq. And these, this is a panoramic picture that U.S. soldiers took, or actually I believe it was Navy troops, took in 2005 and looking at just what part of the city of Babylon would look like. But you can, you can see how thick that outer wall was and how impressive those buildings are. And then what was especially known was the Ishtar Gate. You go to the next, next one. So this is a 40-foot gate that would have been part of that wall. This is a reconstruction of what we think it might have looked like. This is in Berlin. But can you imagine how impressive that would be as you were walking up? And this is impressive now. Back then, most people lived in tents, right? Technology was, was very primitive to have the ability to be able to make this. As you were walking into the city of Babylon, surrounded by walls 40 feet high, this impressive gate. That's good for now, Steve. Thank you. You can see why uh, you know, he's, Nebuchadnezzar has some things that's uh, pretty impressive. He's at ease. He's lounging back. And yet, God interrupts his relaxation with a dream. Let's read the next chunk. We'll read verses 5 through 18. It's a little bit longer. This is how God appears to Nebuchadnezzar. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretations of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. 
I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and in their interpretation. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head as I laid in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and birds from its branches. But leave the stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to end that the living, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now this is the second dream Nebuchadnezzar has received. The second alarming dream that wakes him up in the middle of the night in the cold sweat. And kings back then expected to receive dreams during times of crisis. That's one of the ways they believed the gods communicated with them. And so God used that belief to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar. And he's no fool. The king can most likely connect the dots and realize that he's somehow connected to this tree. In fact, he might just be this tree. And so he seeks out the warning and the meaning to know what this warning is about. And so Daniel reveals the warning. Note as we start in verse 19, it's no longer Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Now the story shifts to a third person. Nebuchadnezzar becomes a little bit more passive. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretations for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who has grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. 
It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of your tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for that time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel reveals the wording and says, King, You've been warned. And he's bold enough to say, don't continue in this path. Your pride is causing you to oppress others. Repent and turn. Show a care for them. This this dream is primarily about kingdoms. Go back to verse 22. It is you, O king, who have grown strong and your dominion to the ends of the earth. King, you have grown great. Um, now this is, but there's another kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now when we talk about the kingdom of God, it is not so much a territory like the kingdom of Jordan, but rather an area of rule where God has influence. Generally, you could say the kingdom of God is where a person has bowed and accepted Christ as Lord. And every time someone does that, the kingdom of God expands. But what's, what Daniel's saying here is, Nebuchadnezzar, you, you are great, but there is this kingdom of God, and God is the king of the earth. Three times he says in this, in this chapter right, that, that this is going to happen, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. It's three times it talks that God is king. And so he says, King, with all due respect, consider yourself warned. And this is not his first warning. He was warned in his dream in chapter 2, and he received a warning when God thwarted his judgment in chapter 3. And yet Nebuchadnezzar does not repent or change his ways. In fact, he seems to grow harder in them. Let's look at his response in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And God, who has been patient for 12 months, responds instantly. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. You can see the consequences of his actions. Nebuchadnezzar boasts, and God says, the kingdom is taken from you. You will be like, come like an animal. You will become inhuman. You will be driven away from people. Living like you are, O king, has driven you insane. So why did God humble Nebuchadnezzar? Why did he do it? 
It's pretty simple. You can, you, does the story kind of reads for itself. It's self-glory, isn't it? He's self-boasting. And as he stands on his palace, and you saw, you saw the impressive works that he had a lot to do in constructing. And as he's looking over all the things his hand has made, he says, I am the best. Look how great I am. Listen to his words again. Is not this Babylon, which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's kind of painful to hear, isn't it? Just hearing someone talk that way. Now, I mean, you might say, well, but I don't, you know, I don't do that. I, I'm not powerful like him. What can I learn from this guy? Well, God does pick him out as a kind of a representative of humans, as, as the man who was the statue, the, the part of head in the statue of gold. He, he does represent some of our desires apart from God. And we may not have the power that Nebuchadnezzar does, but there is still a part of us that very much wants to be in charge. And, and in fact, maybe even if you're a person that doesn't want to control their people, you just want, you just want your quiet and you want your comfort. You still want to be queen or king about the parts that you want, right? I, I don't need to, I don't need to have any leadership, but don't touch my routine, right? Don't, don't touch my schedule. Don't touch my spreadsheet, my workouts, my hobbies, right? We, we all have these areas where I, I want to be king. I must be king. And then we boast about them. Well, let me ask you, where is it that you boast? Each, each one of you, each one of, uh, we have a place where we want to hold on to something and say, this is what makes me significant. This is what I can hold on to and soak up glory. I, I don't care where you are in your life. You, you will be somewhere where you will be tempted to compare yourself with someone. There will be those fleeting thoughts, even if, even if that's not something you make a habit of doing. When I'm in the army, I know there's people who, they, they don't know the Lord, and they're just very much into wrapped up into comparing themselves, how much they make, how much they're different from other people, talking about people behind their backs. But even you, if you've, you have that new life, and, and that's not the way you live, you will still have those fleeting temptations to make your achievements your glory, whether it's your, your career, your family, your lifestyle, your awards, your wealth, or it could be what you don't do, you know? I've kept down a steady job. At least my kids have left home. I don't complain. Right? And, and there's that temptation to, to grab the glory from God and then to move from achievement or from what we haven't done to pride, to self-righteousness, to looking down on everyone else, to compare ourselves. This is for my glory. This is for my majesty. And I think to add a further wrinkle today, we have something that's called the self-esteem movement. Each generation has their, their insights and their problems when it comes to um, biblical understanding. And self-esteem movement can be a bit of a challenge because if, if you, you've got to get your terms right. If you mean just by self-esteem, simply respect that you don't have an unhealthy loathing or shame. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But... Much of uh, self-esteem today, maybe you teachers may have run into this, is really just teaching young people to worship themselves. It's just, it's self-admiration. There's a, a guy named Matt Walsh who says, self-esteem is really just to admire yourself, to gaze at your little life with adoration and wonder. In fact, I've, I'm a chaplain, and when I go and have my question of the day, one of the questions I've asked my soldiers is, who inspires you? And I was shocked that some of the soldiers said, Honestly, I inspire myself. 
It's like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I eventually came up with this. You can't say yourself and you can't say God. Come on, choose somebody else. All right? But where do they learn that? Probably from, from the talk today. It says you are just so awesome. You are taught to admire yourself simply because you are you. And uh, Matt Walsh, he was talking about this. He, he asked my teacher, why am I special? He says, go because you are you. And he says, I find this very surprising coming from a woman who just gave me a D in my math class. But this idea of self-esteem means that you can assign value to yourself simply because you say so. Right? I am a self-assured, confident skydiver. Haven't skydived before? But I have self-esteem about it. This was supposed to be freedom. You might know Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, God is dead, and we have killed him. Now, in his, in, in his uh, writing about the madman who goes out there, he was really saying, this is a good thing. We've cleared away all the restrictions that God has put on us. And, of course, there were times that religion has been, Christianity has been legalistic and, and, and misses the point of God's law. But he's just saying, we get to now clear away everything that God has said, and we get to reinvent ourselves, and we get to admire and adore ourselves for who we create ourselves to be. We get to make a name for ourselves. It sounds a little bit like Genesis 11, doesn't it? We're going to reach up to the sky. We're going to define our own existence. Well, the problem is this kind of self-esteem is, is a house of cards. It's, it's not liberating, but in fact, it's blatant self-worship that leads to insanity. Now, God shows in, in Daniel that this glory grab, glory grab leads to insane and, and beastly attitudes. God literally gives Nebuchadnezzar a crazy mindset where he goes out and acts like the beasts. Now, it's true that Nebuchadnezzar's boasts didn't cause him to be insane. God did that as a, a judgment on him, to humble him. But he becomes a picture of the insanity of sin and self-worship. And think about this. If God hadn't intervened, um, Nebuchadnezzar, for all of his glory, would have died like everyone else in his boasting. Steve, you have that last picture of Babylon. This is a picture of Babylon taken in 1932. It's the ruins of Babylon. What is this great city that I have made for my name, and for my glory, it is now a pile of just decaying mud bricks. Thank you, Steve. That's, that's what our glory grab turns out to be. Insanity is for us to do the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. You've probably heard that before. But isn't that what we try to do when we try to find ultimate fulfillment in other things besides God and his glory? You know, you can be that overachiever and grab the spotlight to find, and to find your success, but you'll find that you have to keep working harder and harder to keep achieving more, and it won't make you happy on your own. I know she's quite dated by now, but the, you know, the, the pop singer Madonna said, Fame? I've tried it. It's not what it's cracked up to be. You can have it. Maybe you're not an achiever, you're that self-righteous comparer. Then you'll always have to work to be better than someone else in something. It's exhausting. You'll find yourself jealous of other people when they succeed. 
and even secretly rooting for them to fail. Have you ever had that before? Like, why? Why? Why, why am I rooting for that person to do poorly? It, it, it's because we're trying to grab, grab glory. And, and, and when you try to do this over and over again, and this is what you built your, built your life on, it, it leads to insanity. I, I want to talk for just a minute about mental illness and, and what we call um, psychiatric insanity. Because that's a big topic today. Mental illness, uh, suicide, self-harm. And I want to be very careful that you understand what I'm saying here because you could misunderstand me very easily. Um, Mental illnesses and things like uh, suicide and depression come to everyone. It doesn't, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that the darkness goes away if you're depressed. It's not come to Jesus and and your, your life will be all of a sudden better. But we are seeing an uptick in our world of mental illnesses, of people who are, are increasing antidepressants. Um, and we have to ask not just how can we you know, medicate people better, but what's, what's the underlying condition? And this is not the only condition. There's a lot of things, but I, I believe that one of the conditions is that we tell people that your self-esteem is what will fulfill you. That if you can just like yourself enough, then you'll be happy. Well, if you define yourself by your existence, you will be disappointed. The problem with self-esteem is that it's never greater than yourself. Why is there all the Twitter storms about self-righteousness today? I mean, people level the... People accuse the church of being self-righteous, and there are times that we are, and we need to repent of that. But as you see on Twitter, there are many people who would be not religious, who are very self-righteous. They are very condemning. They come down on other people who sometimes even just politely disagree with them. Why are there all these safe zones today where you don't dare criticize my lifestyle? Do you you know why that has to be that way in our society? Why people feel that need? To, to push away and protect. It's, it's because I have built a world on an identity of myself. And that's very fragile. One writer said that you know, if you grew up a couple generations ago, your identity was defined by your community. Now that can have some problems on its own. That can be. But because it was defined by your community and your community was behind you, if someone came up to you and said, I don't like you very much, You'd say, well, that hurts a little bit, but I know a hundred people who do. So I think I'm just going to go talk to them right now. But if today the narrative is that to become yourself, you have to look deep into your inner self. And you have to determine who you truly are. And then you have to come out and announce that to the world. And that is what fulfills your position. Then if someone dares disagree with you, You're in a very lonely place. You only have one person who can advocate for you, and that's you. I I believe that one of the reasons we have so much depression and suicide today, it's not the only reason, there's there's many variables, is but because young men and women are told the lie that you must esteem yourself above all else, and you define yourself, and we would say in biblical terms, you worship yourself. And then what happens is they realize they're not enough. 
And where do you go? You're depressed. We have a lot of craziness in our world today. When a 40-year-old man comes out and identifies as a six-year-old girl, that is insane. It's insane. <laughs> but, and there's a time to point out the silliness of that statement, but I also want you to look at that person with love and pity. That, that person is in such an empty, useless position to define themselves. The burden is all on them, and it is crushing them. I need to stop here and just say, what's the biblical answer to self-esteem? We can agree with those who would say, think of yourself highly, that we have incredible value. But it's not because we say so. It's because we were created in the image of God. And we have fallen from that glory that we try to grab, and we need to be restored and reconciled. And so we can say, yes, we are wonderful people, Beings, But you have to understand that in order to have glory, you, you have to know the gospel. We were glorious because we've been made in the image of God. Right? God the, the, the Garden of Eden was actually a temple. It was temple language. God puts an image in the garden so that people could see the God. The image reflects who the God is. And so we're glorious as we grow and act like God. And just like anything that was made... You're made, and that means you have a purpose given to you by your maker. You don't get to choose it. As restrictive as that sounds, it's actually freeing. Think about this. A car is designed to drive on the road. If a car identifies as a plane, it's still a car. And in fact, a car would be most fulfilled by driving on the roads and not trying to go airborne like a plane, right? That's, that's how it works. And God's purpose for us, we could say, as people, is to be renewed so that we can reflect His glory, not try to define an existence for ourselves. The problem with self-esteem is that, that the definition today, you're never greater than yourself. But if you accept the gospel of Jesus, then you are valued and loved by someone infinitely greater than yourself. Someone who one day will bow before Him and hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. And Christians, that means that if you are the only person who is living for Jesus and everyone else says, we don't like what you're doing, even though you're being loving, you don't have to crumble because you have one voice who is much larger than everyone else saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, praise God for his mercy and restoration. You see Nebuchadnezzar humbled, driven away, insane like a beast, and yet God brings him back. Let's go to verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can stay his stand or say, what have you done? We have a God who is all-powerful and yet shows Nebuchadnezzar mercy. How can you apply this? How can we think about the kingship of God? Two things. Bow and serve. The first one is is very, very clear. Just bow, give your life to true king. Over and over and over again, three times it says, 
God is king. This seems so simple to say it. That it, do I even need to say it? Um, but how many people say basically say God is love, which means he loves me enough that I really can just pick and choose what I want to do. Uh, I can really do whatever I want. Really what I mean is God is love and he loves me enough to let me be God and him not be God. Um, right now, God is loving in very many ways. But this here brings out his kingship. And that as king, he is rightfully angry with people who grab his glory. And there is a warning here. If you are not going to pursue God, you will end up in insanity. Maybe God will humble you and give you a chance to come back. Or maybe God will just say, you know what? You want to keep pursuing your own glory? Fine. Have it your way. And at some point, you'll be forced to bow the knee to Jesus, not wanting to adore him, but forcing to and recognizing him as the real king. I'll just say here today, if you know this is me, like I, I, I am not living for God. I am living as my own king. I'm defining my own exist- existence. I pick and choose what I want to do. I just plead with you to consider this fact that God is the true king. You've been warned. You've seen his mercy. Like Nebuchadnezzar, realize how God is great and repent. Bow the knee to Jesus. But second of all, how do you serve this great king? And if you were like me, even, even when you want to serve Jesus, do you ever have this distressing feeling of those little weeds in your heart jumping up, kind of growing almost instantly to grab that glory when God does something good in your life? Do you ever feel that? Isn't that distressing to you? As, as someone that God said, I want you to be up front. There, there are times when I, I just, you know, I say something, I thought, you know, I kind of like the way I said that. And a little bit of my heart takes credit. And there's other times where I was like, wow, man, you know, my, my tongue was just completely led. And I'm upset, not because God's word wasn't spoken clearly, because I looked bad, Right? Preachers always obsess, you know, that's just how it is. My, in, my, in my seminary class, my one professor said one day he just was going home from church and he just felt like he absolutely butchered his sermon. He said to his wife, that was the worst sermon I've ever preached. And she thought and said, no, no, actually it wasn't. You know, we are so full of ourselves and whether you're up front or not, Wherever you are, isn't it so easy to just, there's that little bit of you that wants to grab up and, and jump that. And, and in fact, sometimes we can go wrong. We're so, we're so scared of that, that we will discredit or discount or bury God's gifts, right? If, if I'm afraid of being too proud of doing well or poor up front, I should just aim for mediocrity, right? Then I have nothing to worry about. No. No, you, you can actually downplay your gifts in a way that dishonors God too. So how can we then, when we say, yes, we acknowledge God as king, how can we serve him in a way that brings him glory without us hogging it? Well, there's, there's really just two, two simple things. You repent and you rejoice. Now, first of all, we, we need to have that proper view of our own heart. It's, it is distressing when we claim credit, and yet the Bible says that even our our best good works still are not going to earn God's favor. Our, our confession says our best works are defiled and mixed 
with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. It doesn't mean they're not worthless. It just means they can't earn our salvation. And our good deeds, our love towards God, is kind of like me when I was a little boy, five or six years old, at the parsonage lawn with my mom, and I wanted to show her how much I loved her. So I went outside and I picked her a beautiful bouquet, massive bouquet of dandelions, dollar, half dollar size dandelions that will, you know, spread pollen and soon turn to seed. And I said, Mom, I love you. Here I go. Here you go. Right. And she and she loved it as imperfect as it was. But it wasn't a, a gorgeous bouquet of flowers from the store. We need to remember that this side of heaven, we are going to live and we are going to be little kids that say, Father, I love you. Take what I have, you know, as imperfect as it is. We know that you use it. Thank you for accepting me. And then you need to, as you're repenting, remember the gospel. It's, it's humbling to think that our works, to know that your works are imperfect. That can be humbling. That, that Father... I'm serving you to the best of my ability and I still fall short in ways. But, but when you do that, then you can acknowledge the fact that Jesus was the perfect one, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and became a servant. And he humbled himself to death on the cross. And he completely relied on his Father's will and he submitted to him. And he paid that price for us, robbing his glory and now he allows us to repent and give us the grace to serve the Lord. And so you can, you can remember the gospel. And that brings you back to that. You can, you can humble yourself and say, I need, I need you, Lord. But isn't that the path of freedom? When you humble yourself, that is when God strips away your fading glory and your false boasting. Because you realize that everything you have is from God. So I plead for you, submit to God's humbling. It is actually the path to thanks, thankfulness. It's the path to satisfaction. Uh, most of you know a story that Elizabeth and I and our son Sam, uh, we were not able to have kids on our own, and so Sam is an embryo adoption baby. And I will tell you, growing up in the homeschooling community where we wanted to have four to eight kids of our own, to not be able to have kids was incredibly humbling. feel like you're, you're lacking some way. But I do believe that I would have, in some ways, struggled with pride if God had given us those four to eight children and they had grown up to love and serve the Lord. doesn't mean he could have, couldn't have worked in my heart. But instead, he chose a different way for me. This embryo adoption, the wonder of Elizabeth bearing Sammy and bringing him into the world, even though we had nothing to do with bringing him out. And God has actually put me in this delightful position where I can't take credit for Sam. So I can say, what a smart boy you are, right? I'm not, I'm not boasting. I'm maybe a little bit, but it's not, you know, it's, it's different. And I can now sit back in a place almost daily with amazement and delight that the Father has blessed us with this little guy. There are times when God will humble you he will bring you to your, your point of need and where then you can, he can build you back up and you can rejoice 
in what he's given you. See, once you repent, and you've truly repented and humble, you can rejoice. You, you, you can redirect your heart from grabbing glory to reflecting it. You make your intention to glorify God and thank him for everything you do. You know, when, when Sam gets a little bit older, we will, we were already telling him, Sam, you're so special, right? We tell him we love him, but we don't keep it there. We connect it to what God has done for us. Sam, you, you are God's gift to us. Right? So now it's not just because you're special because you're you, but you're special because, because God has made you and he's put you here. And I think Sam's going to grow up to be a pretty smart guy. They say, Sam, you're smart. God's made you smart. It's a gift he's given you. I, want, I, I'm so, I'm so, I delight in that. and I want you to serve God and love other people with your brains, whatever else God's given you. And when you realize that God is king and everything comes from him, first you know how, how, how great the gift and impressive it might be in your life. It's ultimately a gift. And secondly, that God has given you a purpose in that gift. Many of you may know the story Chariots of Fire with Eric Liddell. His plan was to be a missionary to China. But first he ran and won a gold at the Olympics. And his sister was complaining and saying, Eric, God wants you to go to China. And he says in that famous line, which may not actually he have said, but it expresses mature Christian thought. Jenny, God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel his glory. You see, Eric Liddell was not addicted to the temporary fading glories of this kingdom. In fact, he gave up his right to run in the Olympics because the match that he was the strongest in was on Sunday. He said, actually, God is king, and I can't serve my king by competing on Sundays. And so they put him in a different match that wasn't his strength. And God blessed him and he won. And he could have, after winning the gold, basked in that glory and, and lived a comfortable life in England. Instead, he was faithful to God's calling and he went to the mission field in China where eventually, years later, he would die in the Japanese concentration camps. And here you have the story of a man who lived his life giving up comfort and glory that was fading because he was committed to a kingdom that was unshakable. Whatever gift God has given to you, don't hide it because you're afraid it will make you proud. No. Take that gift. Thank God. And use it for him as the king. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this picture of this, this proud ancient king who accomplished more in his life than perhaps all of us will together, humanly speaking. We thank you that you are king. Because of that, you have given us a purpose and a plan. This week, as we go out, would you help us to identify where you have blessed us, to be able to rejoice in that, instead of wanting to grab glory, reflecting that praise back to you as the rightful owner and the gift of that. May we rejoice in you this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.